our way through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, still in chapter 2. But first, before I get too far into that, I want to pull back a little bit and maybe look at this from a broader perspective, get the big picture for a minute. We've already looked at two different cities in Revelation. We understand that those two cities are dealing with, uh, with trial, tribulation, persecution. They're having a, a pretty rough go of it. They're carrying these heavy burdens. And where we might like Jesus to step into the middle of that situation and say, don't worry about it, I got you, everything's going to get better tomorrow. He doesn't, doesn't do that. In fact, in, 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 in one of those two cases, he says, it's definitely going to get worse tomorrow. But stay with me. Be faithful. Have patient endurance. You're going to survive this. You're going to work through this. Does God sometimes intervene in our life to remove burdens? Yes, of course he does. But sometimes he chooses not to. Why, then, we ask, why does God allow these churches, these people who, uh, by his own account, have been pretty faithful to him. They might have some, some flaws that they need to work on, some, some problems. But he acknowledges there's been a lot of faithfulness among these believers. Why, does, why is he allowing this persecution, this tribulation to come? And Revelation sort of indirectly is addressing that question. We have the advantage of hindsight. We, we can look back on this time period. We can look back on the things that happened then and the things that would happen after this letter was written. And, and with the advantage of that hindsight, we look back, and, and one of the things that we need to understand about this from a historical perspective is the faithfulness of Christians in the Roman Empire transformed Western culture. And that is not an overstatement. Even secular historians acknowledge that this little group of Christians that came almost out of nowhere they were this li little insignificant sect within Judaism, and, and their faithfulness, their dogged determination, their persistence, in spite of whatever you threw at them, whatever persecution came, whatever trial, whatever circumstance, these people remained faithful, and that faith changes everything. It is the reason that you and I are here today. It is the reason that people across this country and across this world are gathering this morning to worship Jesus Christ. Their faith changes everything. And it's impressive, in a sense, as we look back on it, knowing that these people had to endure some pretty horrific things that you and I would not ever want to have to endure. It's impressive to note that nothing is wasted. That God uses everything about that situation. Every trial that they have, every martyr that, that gives their life for Jesus becomes a witness to his glory, a witness to his truth. And in fact, the harder that the empire tries to oppress the Christians, the faster the church grows. Here's the thing. They didn't necessarily know at the time that that's what they were doing. They didn't know that they were changing the world. They didn't know 
that the entire uh, history of Western culture would be transformed by the things they did in that moment. All they knew is that they need to be faithful to God. They have to stay the course. God uses their faithfulness to change everything, but they don't necessarily know in the moment that that's where it's going. Just like you and I don't necessarily know when God asks something of us, we don't necessarily know what the end result of that is because we don't have the vision of God. They don't know. So their encouragement from God, the encouragement that they receive in this letter from Jesus is not the kind of encouragement that we often think of as encouragement. It's not about comfort. We, we would all love for Jesus to come into this situation and say, uh, you know, don't, don't worry yourself. Tomorrow I'm going to defeat them all. You guys will have it easy. You'll all be good. It's not that kind of encouragement. It's not the kind of encouragement that lies to you and tells you everything's fine when it isn't. It's the kind of encouragement that says things are going to be difficult, but I'm working through it. I don't know what that is. I am going to cause this um, to bring glory to the kingdom. It's, it's going to be good, in spite of the fact that for you, it might be extremely difficult. Their encouragement comes from something we've talked about before, and that is that revelation, one of the things that revelation does is it pulls back the curtain on the spiritual realm. These people are going to have to endure these hardships, and essentially revelation says, okay, we're, we're going to pull the curtains back, and we're going to show you what this hardship is about. We're going to give you some sense of its purpose and some sense of where you fit into the big grand spiritual picture of things. And there are a number of key points in Revelations, things that, that, that I want to call uh, Revelation principles. And we've encountered a couple of these already in a very subtle form. They're going to be expanded upon later as John continues his vision. But the first is this, first Revelation principle, our king and kingdom are eternal. Jesus is the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. The one who is and was and is to come. This message opens up the book of Revelation and it is repeated throughout. Our king and our kingdom are eternal. Whatever worldly concerns you have, whatever powerful empires you have, you are called upon to try and outlive whatever dark powers you face. Understand that Jesus is king, and ultimately, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every knee will bow and acknowledge that he is Lord. And so all of these people who are in your life right now claiming to be Lord over you, Lord over your life, Lord over the earth, Lord over the empire, it's all bravado. It's all talk. One day they will be humbled by Jesus Christ and they will kneel before him. So remember that as you struggle through the, the evil that they can inflict upon you. Second revelation principle is that the church exists on a battlefield. 
these things are all happening in a space where there is a spiritual war taking place. Now, if the tone of Revelation doesn't always resonate with us, if we read it and we go, oh my goodness, why is this so dark? It's probably because we don't know about the battle. That there's this battle taking place. Now, we know about our personal struggles. And Christianity has become really good at applying its principles to our personal struggles. And we do have personal struggles. We face trials. We face difficulties. That's real. But sometimes we haven't even learned to to place our personal struggles in the context of this greater spiritual battle. Much less the work of the church. It's all taking place in that context of this grand good versus evil conflict. And if we understand that, if we really understand how dire the circumstances are, what it is that God is fighting back on our behalf, where he has placed us in the middle of this battlefield, then we begin to recognize that we have been building country clubs on the front lines. And with that, we come to the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was once the capital of Asia Minor. It's a beautiful city built on a hilltop, and, and in the plains right below that hilltop, it was easily defensible. Even today, just looking at the ruins, you can get a sense of how magnificent this city was. It had a fortress and a palace built on the top of the hill. The main city was down below at the base of the hill. And as you can see there, there's an amphitheater that's built into the hillside. Seated about 10,000 people, 12,000 maybe. And uh, was the steepest amphitheater in the Roman Empire. It was an impressive spectacle. Down in the lower city, they had a gymnasium, a racetrack. The city was absolutely packed with works of art. Everywhere you went, there were statues, mosaics, all kinds of great works of art, many of which have survived even to today. It had, outside of the, the, the famous library of Alexandria, had the lar- largest library in the ancient world. So this is a city of art. It's a city of culture. It's a city of great architecture. And under the Adelaide dynasty of kings, during the, uh, during the Greek period, under the Adelaide dynasty of kings, the city became independent from Greece. They were at peace with Greece, but they basically operated independently. They were given free reign of their own territory. And eventually, the king of Pergamum, Pergamum becomes the king of really all the western cities of Asia Minor. And this Pergamum empire is expanded to include them. Much of the power that they enjoy over the years will come from their relationship with the Roman Empire. They reach out to Rome and they sort of form an alliance and Rome continues this relationship and continues to protect them. And so when, uh, when one of their kings, an Attalus III, was on his deathbed, he didn't have any heirs, and so he wills his empire to Rome. He bequeathed the entire kingdom to Rome, and so Rome 
basically overnight inherits all the west side of Asia Minor, and they were thrilled to have it. The one problem with Pergamum, specifically Pergamum as a capital, is that Pergamum is inland. So the other two cities that we've looked at, they were coastal cities. Now, mind you, Italy, where Rome is, is way off the left side of the map. So it's completely impractical for Rome to be commanding Asia Minor from a city that had no port. And so they moved the capital operations from Pergamum to Ephesus. But Pergamum remains a very influential city. It retained its influence as an epicenter of pagan worship. So the city's already known for its art and for its architecture. What it lacked as a seat of government and commerce, it made up for with its very many impressive temples. There was a temple to Zeus, to Athena, to Demeter, to, to Dionysius, to Hera, and to Asclepius, and many more. And it was the first of these cities to establish uh, an imperial cult. Now, last week we talked about the cult of Rome. That's where we take the city of Rome and the empire of Rome, and we personify that as the goddess Roma, and people would worship Roma. This was the imperial cult, which is related to that. The imperial cult, you sort of take the emperor, and you elevate the emperor as a god, and you worship the emperor. So the very first place that that was practiced was right here in Pergamum. And so there were these imperial temples. The provincial governor of Pergamum had the power of the sword. He would act on behalf of Rome and with the power of Rome had the right to decide which Roman prisoners would live and which would die. including those really pesky Christians who rejected the imperial cult worship. So in many ways, the Christians had to feel like their fate was in the hands of this governor. And that's where, that's where their letter begins. In verse 12 of chapter 2, it says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So the Lord wants them to know, first and foremost, the true sword is the word of God. It's not held by the governor. That's not the one that you need to worry about. The real sword is the word of God. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharp as a double-edged sword. John chapter 1, John tells us Jesus is the word. And he gives us this image in Revelation of the sword, this double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. In other words, it's not something he wields. It's not something he holds in his hand. It is who he is. Whatever emerges from his mouth is, in fact, the word of God. That's how, that's how closely connected they are. And so whatever you face, whatever power your persecutors claim, understand that it is Jesus who wields the sword of truth and justice. 
And then verse 13, it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith to me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. That's, that's a great slogan for your town, isn't it? Pergamum was deep in the territory of the enemy. And we know that life was difficult for Christians in uh, the Roman Empire, but this is a whole other level, isn't it? You live in Satan's backyard. This is Satan's hometown. I'll bet you that wasn't in the brochure. This is not what you want to hear. What is it about Pergamum that makes it that bad? One of the reasons, understand that one of the reasons that Revelation is so dark is as it pulls back the curtain on this grand spiritual battle that's taking place, it is revealing to us an awful lot about the nature of evil. And it's impossible to reveal that nature without things getting a little bit dark. This city is so embroiled in that evil that the Lord basically describes it as Satan's headquarters, courtyard of his kingdom. And yet the Christians remain faithful. They've already experienced some very notable martyrdom, but they've remained faithful. And he, and, he, and he compliments them for that. But then he goes on in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who held, hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now there's some kind of obscure references here that kind of make it difficult uh, from an interpretation standpoint. But remember from our previous study, the Nicolaitans, probably their sin was syncretism, this business of sort of blending together the things of the Christian faith with this, these faith systems of the pagans around them. And understand that the failure of Pergamum was accommodation. How do we know that? Well, Balaam is the key. Now, if you remember Balaam, chances are you remember Balaam as the guy who had a talking donkey. Because why wouldn't you remember that? That might be the most memorable part of the story, but it is part of a much larger story in which Balaam is essentially being contracted. He's being paid by Balak, who's the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. So Balak sees the Israelites sort of move into his territory, and he becomes very worried about this because he recognizes that they have divine help, that God is helping them. He is on their side. And you don't want to go into battle with somebody who has God's help. And so he decides, I'm going to find somebody who will curse them, and then maybe they won't have God's help anymore. So he sends for Balaam. Balaam initially refuses. He's like, I can't, I can't go with you. God said no. And then they keep asking him. They keep after him. So eventually he, he agrees to go, but he, he agrees to go with a certain caveat, sort of a disclaimer. He tells Balaam, I need you to understand 
And once I start speaking, I will only be able to say what God allows me to say. But he agrees to the deal. He's going to take Balak's money, and he's going to perform this curse on Israel. The problem is he opens his mouth to, to, to speak this curse on Israel, and everything that comes out of his mouth is a blessing. He ends up just blessing Israel. And Balak is, is furious. Like what, I, just, I just paid you all this money to curse Israel, and you bless them instead. What is going on? He says, I did tell you, I did warn you that, that I, wouldn't o- I would only be able to say what God allows me to say. They do this three times. Because Balak apparently is a very slow learner. They do this three times, and every time, Balaam opens his mouth to curse the people, and out comes his blessing. And if this, is, this is the end. Balak has had enough. He's mad. He's, he's distraught. He's furious with Balaam. So I, I don't even know what is going on here, and they're going to part company. But something happens before they part company. There's a conversation that takes place. It's not recorded in any of the books that we have. But there are these references in the rest of Scripture to this conversation that takes place between Balaam and Balak. Where Balaam essentially tells Balak, look, the reason I cannot curse these people is they are the covenant people of God. And so if you really want to curse them, if you really want to separate them from their God, you need to get them to violate their covenant. How are you going to do that? Balaam's suggestion is the women of Moab. Get the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel, and then they can invite them to the party at the temple, and they'll go along. From this point forward, from this point in history forward, the story of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, the doctrine of Balaam is associated with enticing God's people to idolatry. Understand how this works, all right? If someone showed up here this morning, wheeled an idol in from the back of the room and set it up here on stage and said, All of you now need to sing to and pray to and worship this idol. We would run that guy out of town on a rail. We would immediately recognize the immorality of what he's suggesting. So what do you do? You take the product, the presumed product of whatever that God is, and you offer that to people. You say, here, try this. Whatever blessing, whatever power, whatever goodness this false god has to offer, give it a try. And once, once they've reeled us in with that, then we find ourselves worshiping and relying upon a god that we said we would never, ever worship. Get us practicing idolatry. Because if we acclimate to the immorality, if we become dependent upon the product of these false gods, 
and we're practicing idolatry whether or not we know it. See, worship is about what our source is. We worship God, we worship Jesus Christ because they're the source. They're the source of life, they're the source of hope, they're the source of our faith. If we start looking to any other source for life, for truth, for purpose, for healing, for redemption, for provision, then we begin to practice idolatry because idolatry only requires that we seek things that should come from God from some other source. That's all. We don't even need the statue. All we need to do is to be seeking things that we're supposed to receive from God from some other source. And so, Pergamum, Pergamum offered many other sources. And some in the church even advocated a blurring of the lines. Look, remaining consistent, remaining faithful to this God, to this Jesus, that's all well and good. But excluding ourselves from the other things that are going on in this town is only making our lives more difficult. Couldn't, couldn't we just, let's just bring things together. Let's, 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 just, let's just work it all out. It's all good. Here is another revelation principle. It's only hinted at here. It's going to become extremely important as we move forward through this book. The most dangerous evil is almost. It's, it's not the evil that we recognize at first glance. The most dangerous evil is the one that almost gets something right almost looks a little bit like Jesus. It almost sounds a little bit like Jesus. And so in this city, you have the altar of Zeus. Zeus is the god of gods. And essentially, if you go and worship at the altar of Zeus, he's god over everything. So beyond that, you could pretty much worship however and wherever and whoever you want. But in doing so, you'll be acknowledging that Zeus is the greater god. You can go worship Jesus, as long as you understand that Zeus is greater than Jesus. We understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And in this city, there are imperial temples in which you go to worship the emperor as the Son of the God. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, that through him we have abundant life. We have eternity. We have fellowship with God all through the sacrifice that he makes for us. In this city, in Pergamum, you have the temple of Dionysius, the god of wine, who's said to be the son of Zeus and a mortal woman. And Dionysius promises a good life. He promises a life after this one. He promises intimacy with God. And you achieve it all, not through sacrifice, but through drunken orgies. Jesus is the creator and the healer. But there's a hospital in Pergamum. And the hospital is actually a temple. 
It is the temple of the god Asclepius, who's a snake god. Our modern symbol of medicine still is a rod with a snake wrapped around it. This is the symbol of Asclepius and its creatures. Think about it. This hospital of Asclepius, you come in and you worship this snake god. You pass by these idols uh, as you enter and you worship this snake god. You bow down before him and then they admit you to this big room underneath the temple where they put you to sleep with various drugs and you are healed from whatever affliction you have. And when you are healed, you come back and you worship Asclepius again. Jesus fed thousands of people from a few loaves of bread. And more importantly, he gives himself uh, to us as the bread of life, redeeming us from our sin. But in Pergamum, you had a temple to Demeter, who's the god of grain. She promised good harvest to you if you come and, and worship her. And in her temple, worshipers could seek absolution from their sins by being baptized in bull's blood. See, whatever truth, whatever hope, whatever life is in Christ, this city had some counterfeit to offer. And folks, it's the same today. Probably if I, uh, if I came in this morning and introduced you to the precepts of some satanic cult, you would easily recognize and reject that. But if I give you something that looks a little bit like Jesus, sounds a little bit like Jesus, fits the cultural picture of Jesus that we have formed for ourselves, I can fool you into following something that is not Jesus. we define our truth not by what Jesus says but by something that sounds pretty good to me that's idolatry if if we find our meaning not not in Jesus but in something that we consider wholesome that's idolatry if we seek validation if we seek hope if we seek love if we seek joy from something that isn't Jesus that is idolatry and I know some of you will say, man, you're so uptight. Couldn't you just once come in here and say, Jesus loves us and everything's going to be okay? Jesus loves you and everything's going to be okay. But also, also know this, that if if the only truth that you're prepared to listen to is the truth that offers you comfort, is the truth that offers you ease, is the truth that requires nothing of you, you won't even be able to finish basic training. You, you cannot possibly prepare for the battle that is the field on which we live. And here's, here's what I'm getting at. Satan doesn't want you to know that we're at war. 
wants you to think everything's fine. He wants you to think that, that, we're, we're, that there's, a, there's a, a truce between us and the world. We like that idea. We like the idea of an American culture that is modeled after what we believe. Because that makes us feel comfortable. Makes us feel like there's not a great spiritual battle taking place. But it's a lie. And it always has been a lie, even when things were better than they were. Satan would rather entice us with worldly things while keeping us ignorant of his actual intent. And why? Well, because it works. And it works because we, we kind of never reach that place where we've had enough. The culture continues to turn its back on God, continues to wander further and further away from him, and as bad as it gets, we just sort of reach this place and go, yeah, well, we're used to it. It's just the way the world is. We never get to the place where we've really had enough, where, 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 where we change our direction because things are too broken. We just keep acclimating. People who don't know that there is a battle don't prepare for war. And so we treat going to church as a substitute for actually following Jesus. You can do that when there's no battle. We treat spiritual formation and discipline and, and Bible education as sort of nice but not that important. Why? Because you can do that if you don't know there's a battle. Understand, though, that the enemy is not on vacation. The enemy has not stopped working. He's not, he's not done trying to deceive us. He's not done trying to lure us in to worship false gods with his deceptions. He's not done trying to do that to your kids. He's not done trying to do that to your neighbors. And if, if I am sometimes too passionate in the eyes of some, if Caleb and I take ourselves too seriously, and you just want to say, ah, so that's a preacher talk, and they have to say that because that's what we pay them to say, plus which they like the sound of their own voices. I know how easy it is to dismiss it. I know how frustrating it is to have me say that this should be the most important thing in our lives when it's really difficult to make it the most important thing in our lives. But here's the deal. Satan is still working. The battle is still on. And if I am frustrated sometimes, if, I, if my heart is broken sometimes by what I witness in the Christian world today, it's because it seems to me that the Lord's army has ended with recruitment and that nobody goes on to basic training. Nobody goes on to the mission. We're bringing Nerf guns to a sword fight. People who are at war prepare themselves for battle. They study the field guide. They know it. They recognize the enemy's deceptions. They weed out his propaganda. In a war, men stand up 
and they protect their family and their church and their community from the darkness. And the women in their life don't resent them for standing up. They applaud them for standing up. And they stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And they train for the battle. And they prepare their children to survive and to thrive on the battlefield. The church in a war does not stand on convention. It does not function on a principle of convenience. It is about the mission. The mission must succeed. And so anything that we find worth doing, we know that it must be worth doing well because lives could depend upon it. Souls could depend upon it. So I am uptight. I am uptight because I'm tired of seeing a church in America that has been lulled to sleep and spends its time flirting with the enemy. While the battle rages, we have boarded a battleship and the Christians are on the Lido deck drinking Mai Tais. We have set up a tea party in the midst of trench warfare. Revelation 2 and 17 says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. See, the victorious rely on Christ. Christ is not going to make a show of what he does in your life. That's up to you. Your life is its own witness. He, he doesn't need the show of these pagan gods. You don't need to prove that he's provided your bread. It'll be hidden, and it'll be better. In the temple of Asclepius, when people went to get healed, if they were successfully healed, incidentally, the uh, priests of the temple of Asclepius would turn you away if they thought you were going to die because that didn't serve their purposes. But if you were healed in the temple of Asclepius, there was a great white stone that they would etch your name and your affliction in. Say, this person has been healed by our great snake God. But Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you a white stone with your name on it. It'll be a new name, and you'll be the only one who knows it. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm, I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you my identity. This will be who you are. I'm not just going to heal you from whatever passing affliction you know now. I'm going to heal you from everything. You're going to be made whole. You have to wonder, don't you? I mean, we're three letters in, and the situation that these Christians are facing in the Roman Empire is not great. But they're all hanging out in the cities. And folks, Christianity wasn't nearly as dangerous if you were in rural Rome. If you, if you were a farmer, if you lived out in the country, you didn't face these things every day. So you've got to ask the question, why are they there? If it's so hard in the cities, why are the Christians there? Why did they remain? And they remain. The only explanation we have, they remain, 
because people are answering a call to follow Jesus. They remain because it's important to the mission. They remain because Jesus himself said that my church will storm the gates of hell and the gates will not prevail against my church. They remain because this is where they serve.